This evening, I'm going to talk uh, in this series, uh, which is a series about the very major infections of the human body, uh, about infections and the nerves and how they can affect the nerves uh, throughout uh, various points in your life and by a variety of different mechanisms. The brain thinks, and last time we talked about uh, infections in the brain, but the peripheral nervous system, what happen, everything that basically happens in this talk I'm going to be talking about from the neck downwards, uh, acts and senses. So every sensation you have, every action you do, depends on having an intact, effective nervous system. And for the purposes of this talk, I'm going to divide the nervous system, peripheral nervous system, into four different sections. The motor system, this controls your movements, controls your muscles. The sensory system, and this is what uh, allows you to feel, touch, pain, temperature, uh, hearing, sight, stretch, a variety of different uh, forms of sensation. The autonomic nervous system, which is what allows you to uh, regulate fight or flight, so you can actually uh, suddenly do things very uh, actively or not, uh, and maintains your basic functions. And then the spinal cord, which is the motorway of the nervous system, but is a lot more than that, as I'll come on to. And the reason I'm laying this out is different infections can affect one of these, or two of them, or all of them. And uh, they do so via, via different uh, variety of mechanisms. Broadly, there are four different ways in which infections can affect the nerves. The first one, and I, which I'm going to come to uh, in the first section of the talk, are uh, infections which produce toxins. And these toxins are deliberately designed, in some cases, to actually attack your nervous system. And they mainly affect the motor system. The second way uh, is direct infection of the nerves uh, by the infection which leads to the nerves being damaged. The third way is when the body responds to an infection uh, you've had often unrelated to the nerves by mounting an immune response and then that immune response actually damages the, your own nerves. So it's essentially a friendly fire incident from the immune system. And then the final group of diseases are ones which affect the spinal cord, which it can do by a variety of different method methods. With all of these, once your nerves are damaged, you may make a full recovery, but very often people who have significant nerve damage are left with quite long-term or indeed lifelong nerve problems. So this is an area uh, where very definitely prevention is better than cure. Now, to make sense of some of what I'm going to say, I'm just going to remind you of some things which many of you may have rather, uh, rather uh, thankfully given up when you left school. Uh, but just a couple of bits of basic nerve anatomy and uh, physiology. The first thing to say is the spinal cord runs all the way down uh, your spine, uh, as all of you will know. And within it, within the spinal cord, uh, there are two broadly uh, functions. There's a function called the grey matter where the spinal cord does some basic processing and then the rest of it is given over to actually moving sensations from your body up to your brain for the, for the brain to process and commands moving down from the brain to your motor system uh, by these different trunks. And they occur in different bits of the spinal cord. These are actually highly specialised. So, for example, the, uh, the, the, the motorways by which 
you feel pain are different from the ones by which you feel light touch and different again from the ones that you feel uh, sense the things that allow you to sense your joints in space. The third point about the uh, system uh, is that once it's got down to a particular level, and these are named generally after the level of the spine, uh, you have nerves coming from the skin and other organs which go into the central system carrying sensations, and you have uh, nerves going from the central system which carry commands to the motor system. That is the basic uh, anatomy of the uh, peripheral nervous system. And at every time you move between one nerve and the next nerve, or between a nerve and, let us say, a muscle, every time there's a join, the impulses are passed on by neurotransmitters. These are chemicals which are released from the ending of one nerve and then affect either the next nerve or the muscle. And there are two important ones for the system in the periphery. There are lots of them you use in the brain as well. But these two are very important for, uh, in particular, two of the infections I'm going to talk about. A, a, a chemical called acetylcholine, and this is a chemical that's released and it generally leads to an excitation. It actually does an active thing, uh, including the motor system. And the second is a chemical called GABA, and this is mainly used to calm the system down, to actually switch things off. So it's a negative uh, feedback. So that's the bit of basic uh, physiology I just wanted to remind you of. I'm going to start off with probably the worst of these infections, but I'm a, several of the nerve infections are very bad indeed. But uh, if I had to choose which infection not to die of, uh, my least favourite would be rabies, and which we talked about last time, and my second least favourite would be tetanus. Dying of tetanus is an incredibly painful uh, experience. It's a disease which can happen in general either in adults or newborns, uh, it's caused by a bacteria, Clostridium tetani, uh, which lives normally in the soil or, in particular, in animal dung or manure. So it's uh, a very uh, common thing. It's uh, in almost every uh, country in the world, which is in every country in the world. And the ways people tend to get it are either in agriculture, so people who, for example, have agricultural uh, accidents, who spike themselves, who shove a manure-covered fork into their foot uh, after when they're doing their roses. These are very good ways to get tetanus. Uh, or uh, if you actually have childbirth uh, in an unclean environment or using unhygienic methods. Uh, and both of these paintings, I mean, this... Uh, uh, painting is a very common one uh, from religious paintings. This is not the ideal world way to have childbirth under modern circumstances. And what this does is it forms a small abscess, which you will not see. It's not like an abscess that you can actually feel, in which the bacteria uh, thrive, and they produce a very potent toxin. The infection itself is unimportant. The important thing is the toxin that the infection produces. And this is the toxin, and it's a very complicated toxin. This did not evolve by accident. This is something which has got evolutionary benefit to the organism. And what happens is it gets into the nervous system through the motor end plates where the nerves lock onto the muscle, and then it locks itself onto the transport system in the nerve and gets itself transported back right to the central nervous system, into the spinal cord, and there it binds irreversibly to some receptors which lead to the GABA system, which I talked about, the calming down system, essentially being blocked completely. 
That's how it works. This is not something that happens by accident. And what we don't realize until you do this is the whole system that you move by is a very subtle balance between things telling you to do things and telling you things to switch off. And this is both within a particular muscle, so you can, I can move my arm and it can stop exactly where I want it. But also, it balances because if I move this muscle, the muscle at the back, which would otherwise counteract it, is automatically switched off to allow that movement to happen. If you have tetanus, which switches off the GABA system, both of these cease to function, and the muscles go into uncontrollable spasms. So what happens then clinically, and this is a very famous painting done by Sir Charles Bell. He was uh, a polymath, a great scientist, a moderately good painter, uh, and an appalling surgeon. His uh, mortality rate for surgery was over 90%, um, which even in those days was uh, considered pretty something. Uh, this is a, uh, someone, uh, he did a lot of paintings during uh, the uh, various wars that Britain uh, was undertaking uh, during the, that period. And what happens after a wound is you have the injury, and then there's a bit of a delay whilst the uh, toxin moves up the body. And depending how far it's got to go, this may be days or it may be uh, indeed weeks. And then you start to have spasms. And the spasms start in the nerves which have got the shortest path between the centre and your muscle, and that is the, mus the muscles of the jaw. And that is why tetanus is known in general parlance as lockjaw. The first thing you see is stiffness and then spasming of the jaw. And then it progresses gradually to general spasms over the entire body until you get these terrible spasms uh, like this. And even if you start treatment, uh, this disease will progress. And it then plateaus, uh, and then for around two weeks, people have terrible spasms, despite treatment, because they're now locked on irreversibly to the central nervous system. And then over time, uh, the system turns over, uh, and if people do survive that long, you get a slow recovery. Now, the way you treat tetanus, and I'm going to give a reasonably full example on this one, but this would be true for uh, anything where you're dealing with toxins, is you do broadly three things. You have to give antibiotics because that kills the bacteria, stops new, to new toxin coming into the system. Then you give an antitoxin, which is usually antibodies to the uh, toxin, and they mop up any toxins that are still circulating in the blood to make sure you don't get further problems. And then you give drugs to help relax the muscles, which, uh, which can be a variety of ones. Uh, some of them are relatively mild, some of them more lead to paralysis. You may well need to paralyse people, if you can do so, and ventilate them, and you may well need to put in, if you're not being able to do that, something called a tracheostomy. And that the reason for doing that is the biggest danger of sudden death is the larynx, your vocal cords, themselves going into spasms. So you, start, you swallow they get touched, the muscles react, they go into spasm, and you die almost instantaneously, essentially of suffocation. So you have to put in a tracheotomy below them so that actually people can breathe. Feeding people is very difficult because uh, if you do, if they swallow without a tracheotomy, they're going to uh, cause laryngeal spasm potentially, and it has an extremely high mortality. In low resource settings, this can be up to 80% in adults and 100% in neonates. So this is a very serious disease. Fortunately, uh, there is an extremely effective va vaccine for tetanus, which is the reason we now have uh, so little of it in most countries. Uh, and the toxin uh, is the thing which the vaccine goes for. So it's not, a, it's not a vaccine that is trying to stop people getting the disease. 
probably several of you will have had a tetanus infection at some point, uh, and it's going to cause you no problems at all. What it's trying to do is produce a, an antibodies to the toxin, and that stops you getting the disease, because the disease is due to the toxin, not due to the infection. So uh, the way you do this is you put, you inactivate the toxin, becomes what's called a toxide, and then it's put on something which stimulates the immune system because you need to put uh, something which makes the immune system recognise it. And this is a relatively old vaccine. It goes back to the 1950s. It is highly effective. If you've had full tetanus vaccination, you will not get tetanus. There obviously isn't a herd effect. So with many vaccines, uh, if you're anti-vaccine for bizarre and, in my view, completely unscientific reasons, and you have no vaccines, for many things, if everyone around you is vaccinated, they are protecting you. That's called the herd effect. In the case of tetanus, it's not passed on from person to person, so you're only, you're only protected if you are vaccinated. The protection is specific to you. It has no effect uh, on the general population. Fortunately, given the fact that neonatal tetanus is a big issue, uh, you can vaccinate mothers to protect newborns. So vaccinating mothers, particularly in low-resource settings, absolutely essential. And you can give it with a number of other uh, vaccines as well. The most important uh, form of tetanus in many places is neonatal tetanus. This is tetanus uh, in small children. And this used to be incredibly common, including in the UK. Remember, this is not a tropical disease. This is a disease uh, of essentially living in rural areas and poor uh, hygiene. So this, for example, is St Kilda off the Scottish coast in the 1880s. It, we happen to have very good records from St Kilda in that period. And almost half the children who were born would die within their first 20 days. And the majority of them would die of lockjaw, i.e. of tetanus. Tetanus was probably the single biggest killer of neonatal neonates around the world uh, for much of history. And in some settings, uh, tetanus will, as I say, be the majority of those. Fortunately, because we have an effective vaccine which if you vaccinate the mothers, the children will be protected. And because we have much better midwifery, the rates of tetanus are going right down. So these are the global rates of neonatal tetanus. And if you look around the world now, the great majority of countries have now got to a place where they are, they are deemed by the World Health Organization to have eliminated tetanus. So if you went back uh, to uh, um, 2030, to, to uh, 1988, rather, there were almost 800,000 cases uh, of uh, tetanus. Uh, we're now down to just under 50,000. It's still a lot, but uh, obviously massively uh, fewer. Another bacteria which causes a neurological toxin uh, is botulinum. Now, this, uh, the reason I'm highlighting botulinum is it is the exact opposite of tetanus in the way that it works. Botulinum toxin, or there are in fact toxins because there are several of them, uh, when they get into the system, they block the release of acetylcholine, which is the stimulatory effect. So whilst tetanus leads to spasms, botulinum leads to the muscles not working at all. People become completely floppy. Fortunately, this is a very uh, rare disease now. Uh, you, again, it's something which lives in the soil. Um, it can produce toxins in a number of different environments. And broadly, three groups of people tend to get them, but these cases are very rare. Infants under the age of six months, uh, particularly when they're, uh, they're weaned on things which actually have 
bacteria in them. A classic is honey, actually. In other settings, a very useful thing in, in medicine, but not in this setting. Uh, poorly canned foods, people who home can, uh, and hooch. So it's home, homemade alcohol that isn't being well done, can occasionally give it, but very rarely, and injecting drug users can give it. These are the three groups who tend to get it in, uh, in nature. The reason I wanted to highlight botulinum, however, is actually the toxin kills people in its natural environment and is the most potent toxin known to man, but is also extremely useful in medicine. Uh, Initially, people started using it to prevent people to stop people having muscle spasms of a variety of different sorts. But of course, as you will all know, it's now taken off in a very major way in an incredibly diluted form uh, with the drug Botox, which is used to stop make people uh, feel younger and uh, arguably look younger sometimes. Uh, to be clear, Botox is highly dilute, highly dilute. One gram of botulinum toxin would be sufficient to kill a million people if it was divided equally between them. The third uh, toxin-producing bacteria I wanted to talk about was diphtheria. And diphtheria, again, used to be a very major cause of death in the UK. Uh, and um, a, the, it's a common throat bacteria. Many of you will have diphtheria in your throat at the moment. So this is a common uh, throat bacteria. Again, the bacteria can cause minor uh, th sore throat or nothing at all, but it produces toxins, many of which cause local effects, which are not relevant to this talk, but you can see these uh, areas of dead uh, tissue where the, tox the local toxins have had an effect. But the diphtheria toxins can also cause motor inflammation, which actually then goes on to damage the nerves, at least on a temporary basis. And people can get uh, paralysis that's very localised uh, and uh, affect uh, bits of the body, in particular the palate. Fortunately, with this one, with botulinum, uh, if the person makes a full recovery, and these days in days of antibiotics, almost everyone now does, uh, the nerves will usually uh, fully recover. Diphtheria, again, very common historically, the, the graph on the left is looking at UK data going back to the 1860s. And as you can see, it was going down before vaccination because of improvements in hygiene, improvements in housing, improvements in a variety of other areas. But vaccination has essentially helped to uh, kick it on its way. Uh, and if you look in micro terms at when mass vaccination in dips, of diphtheria happened in the UK, you can see pretty clearly where it was the diphtheria vaccine was introduced. It's where the numbers essentially fall off a cliff. So I have not seen in the UK a single case of uh, diphtheria uh, except in intravenous drug users and uh, people living out in the streets. Uh, I have seen it elsewhere, but this is essentially a disease that has gone away in high-income countries. And the reason for that, again, is vaccination. Anywhere where there are high vaccination rates, vac you are not going to see diphtheria. And unlike tetanus, and uh, botulinum, there is a strong herd immunity. If everyone else is vaccinated against diphtheria, that protects the people who are not vaccinated. So those are three examples of bacteria which produce toxins, where the toxins either damage the nerves or lead to a change in nerve function. Now I'm going to talk about some infections which actually directly infect the nerves. And the first I wanted to talk about in the motor system was polio. Polio is still uh, a threat, but a now almost extinct threat, which I'll come on to, but it used to be very common. This is a ward 
of people in the USA with polio in iron lungs who had complete paralysis, including of their respiration. And much more commonly, around the world, there are still very many people who have uh, paralysis of one or more limbs as a result of polio infections they got in childhood. So polio is a enterovirus. That means it's passed on fecal-orally. It gets from someone else's insides into your mouth. I don't think about it too much, but that is the route by which it is passed on. And it then uh, multiplies in the gut and multiplies in some cases, in a minority of cases, in the, the motor nerves. And it kills them or causes a temporary or permanent paralysis. And there have been major outbreaks, uh, especially in children, including in the US and in Europe. So polio is an historically global problem. Uh, and uh, because of that, the World Health Organization estimates that there are still between 10 and 20 million polio survivors in the world today. Now, in the 1950s, two different vaccine approaches were introduced, one of which was a, an injectable vaccine, and the other one was an oral vaccine, which is called live attenuated oral vaccine. So this is a live virus, but it isn't, doesn't do the things that polio uh, can do in terms of damage. It can replicate in the gut, but not in the nerve. And the advantage of the oral vaccine is it's incredibly easy to give. Many of you will have had it. Most of you probably will. A uh, few drops on a sugar lump. Uh, and it has the additional advantage that children in particular, given this, can spread it around to all their friends, because children are like that. Uh, and uh, if, as, because it's live and attenuated, therefore that infection, that safe infection, was spread, producing immunity to polio through the general population. It has one con, and it is an important con. In about three in a million doses, the, the uh, vaccine will turn back into a wild type, which can then go on to cause paralysis. Small numbers, but not zero. And this is becoming increasingly important as the number of true wild polios have gone right down. Actually, the number of vaccine-derived polio cases is now higher than the number of true cases. So what we're going to have to do is move over increasingly to the non-live uh, vaccination uh, injectable. And if you look at the effect of polio vaccination, it is quite dramatic. So this is epidemics occurring in the USA on the left. Uh, what happened uh, when the first vaccine was introduced and then when the oral polio vaccine and essentially polio disappeared. And on the back of the early positive experiences, there'd been a strong intention by the World Health Assembly on behalf of the globe to lead to global polio eradication. And we are 99.9 recurring of the way there in the sense that if you look at all the different continents of the world, as a result of mass vaccinations against polio, polio has virtually disappeared. But there's an important word in that sentence, virtually. And if you look at polio, it's gone from virtually everywhere in the world, but we still have small outbreaks of wild polio in areas of uh, war, or, civil, or unrest, so in Waziristan, in Pakistan, in uh, some of the more uh, frisky bits of Afghanistan. Uh, and then we have some cases in orange of the orally divide polio, uh, derived polio, where the vaccine has led to small local epidemics. So we need to mop this up. And eradication is tantalizingly close. So 
we had uh, 350,000 wild cases in 1988. Uh, we had uh, 29 in 2018. That's data from last week. It may just go up one or two, but basically very small numbers. Uh, but uh, we're not there, and we've been tracking along in very small numbers for the best part of 15 years now. So the tail end of eradications are difficult, as I talked about in a previous talk. Polio is the main cause of flaccid paralysis, but it is actually not the only one. Some of the other enteroviruses, which are extremely common, to be clear, children will go through childhood and will get them from time to time, uh, can cause uh, acute flaccid paralysis. Flaccid meaning floppy. So paralysis where people's uh, muscles are floppy. The others are fortunately very rare. Uh, they do exist, though, and they do tend to come in spikes. So there was a spike in the UK in the last three months of last year, in 1918, uh, where we saw 28 cases scattered across the UK. These weren't just localised in one place, but they produce a polio-like syndrome, but from a different kind of virus. And the same is true in the US. And I've put up a map of the US just to make the point that this occurs everywhere. One or two cases in every state, rather than highly clustered. But they do tend to be quite seasonal, and uh, it is likely in that one virus in particular, something called EVD68, uh, uh, if you like that kind of thing, uh, which causes a respiratory infection, uh, are the culprits where these occur. But very small numbers. So that was direct invasion of the nerves. Then we come on to uh, immunological damage to the motor service nerve system. And here... Uh, there's an important syndrome. A syndrome is a collection of symptoms called the Guillain-Barré syndrome. It's actually a group of different diseases, not just one. And this is caused almost certainly in almost all cases by the body's immune response to an infection. So it's not the infection is damaging nerves directly, but the immune system is mounting a defence against the infection and in doing so damages the nerves by accident. And it can rarely occur after various infections. A few of them, it's more common than others. So, for example, there's a well-known gut bacteria called Campylobacter, which is known to be associated with this syndrome. Uh, CMV, cytomegalovirus, uh, and Zika virus, uh, recently we found, is now associated with this. So various vaccines can, uh, infections can do it. And very occasionally, some vaccines can do it as well. Uh, for example, the vaccine used against the 1976 influenza vaccine very rarely causes this. And what this does is some of the uh, syndrome involves damaging the nerve itself. The immune system damages the nerve. And some of them, what it does is it damages the sheath around the nerve. And what happens, as again you'll remember from school, just in some cases, is that when a nerve signal is propagating, it jumps from node to node to node through this insulation, the myelin sheath, and this uh, syndrome damages the sheath around the nerves. It's rare, but it's, uh, every doctor who works will see a few cases, uh, one to two cases per 100,000 people per year, pretty well everywhere in the world. This is, uh, this is a global phenomenon. If people have this, it typically comes on three to six weeks after the infection. So this is not a direct effect to the infection. It's because the immune system uh, is, uh, is activated. 
and it usually takes one between a day and a couple of weeks to reach its severity. And what people start off with is weakness of the, of the lower limbs generally, so generally it's the legs, and that gradually ascends until it gets up as far uh, as uh, the chest in some cases, the muscles of respiration. And this is what can cause problems. And up to 5% of people can die as a result of this. So this is, in most cases, a, a reversible disease, but in some cases, fatal. There is now treatment, and the treatment is to interfere with the immune system, for example, by something called plasmapheresis, where you take out the immunoglobulins, which are part of the immune response, from the blood of someone to try and damp the immune system down. And most people should make a good but slow recovery. So those are some examples of toxins of direct invasion of the immune system affecting the motor system specifically. Now let's move on to the sensory nervous system, uh, the, the system that allows you to touch and feel in general uh, in, in, in all the different ways. The first group of, uh, of infections I'd like to talk about with this one are some viruses that use your sensory system as a place to hide. And the one that uh, is probably the biggest uh, worry for most people uh, is this uh, uh, infection, herpes zoster, a virus, which, uh, varicella zoster virus, another name for it, uh, which causes the disease shingles. Now, all of you pretty well will have been infected with chickenpox in your childhood. You may even have photos of it. And the chickenpox virus then goes it gets into the sensory nerves and then goes back to the, bait, the roots of the nerves and then it hides there generally for the rest of your life. And from time to time, it will then come out or can come out, travelling back up the nerves and it will then cause inflammation and essentially a rather severe form of chickenpox just in the distribution of the single nerve that it's come out of. So, for example, in this uh, gentleman's case... It's a nerve that supplies the skin to the chest. And you'll see it stops at the midline because the nerve comes around one side and comes around the other. In this unfortunate lady, it's the nerves that actually supply the branch of the sensation to the forehead and the area around the eye. So wherever it comes out, it will cause a localised, very severe form of chickenpox. It tends to be quite painful at that time it happens. It burns and it certainly uh, doesn't help your modelling career uh, if you have it. But much the most important is in some people it can cause long-term pain well after this has happened and it can also cause scarring. So it is not a trivial thing. And the reason I'm highlighting this is around a third of people currently will get shingles in their lifetime. So this is a common disease. And of those up to 20% will go on to develop this very unpleasant, painful condition, post-hepatic neuralgia. And to be clear, this is not a trivial pain. Some people have you know, contemplated suicide as a result of it. The pain is so bad uh, and so difficult to manage. Now, there are two vaccines you can approach, approach things with, the first of which is to vaccinate against people against chickenpox. And that's done in some countries, including the USA, uh, in the UK, we don't do that for reasons I'll come on to when I talk about age distribution of uh, infections in, in a talk later in this series. But there are now uh, two vaccines that are available, uh, widely available, against shingles. Um, one of which we use in the UK, one of which is a relative new one. And these vaccines, if you give them to older people, 
They're not given to people in younger life, so this is an older person's vaccine. These vaccines will protect them to a high degree, somewhere between 50 and 90%. The more recent vaccine looks as if it's closer to 90% protection for shingles for a number of years, although uh, potentially not uh, for ages. And the reason that we give this to older people is the age distribution of shingles is very heavily weighted to older people. So this is the age of peak onset of shingles, the incidence per thousand person years in every country in the world, just making the point that this is something which is a global problem. And here are some US data showing the gradual increase from the age of about 60 up to 80, more than 80 here. Light blue people who have shingles, dark blue people who have shingles and have post-hepatic neuralgia, this very unpleasant uh, long-term problem. And it's really the neuralgia that the vaccines are there to try and prevent. So if you haven't had a shingles vaccine and you're over 70, can I encourage you to see your GP? Because it is actually really unpleasant. Where you look where we've deployed the shingles vaccine, you can see here in the UK, for example, shingles has been steadily going up in incidence for reasons we don't fully understand. And then in the age group we've produced, uh, we've given vaccines to, the incidence of shingles is now dropping as a result of vaccination. But in the age group above which we don't give the vaccines, so people 80 years or older, uh, the incidence is in fact not dropping. So it's very clear the vaccine is having a significant effect at a population level, and the data on the right are from the USA. So this is something which you can protect yourself against to a very high degree by the vaccination. A related virus uh, is the herpes viruses. And there are broadly two of them that are important. Herpes 1, which causes cold sores. Most of you will have had these at some point, uh, and teenagers tease one another mercilessly about them, but they're generally pretty trivial, provided they stay uh, in the peripheral nervous system. Uh, and then herpes 2, which is usually, not always, a genital infection. And again, what happens is you get a primary infection. The primary infection can really be quite unpleasant. Then it goes back to the nerve roots. It hides there and then comes out every, in the case of the genital herpes, normally it will come out several times a year. And in that time, it will shed virus inside the genital tract. Most people after their first infection have no symptoms, but they will be infectious to other people. And as I say, the first infection is unpleasant. If you look in the US, uh, around 12% uh, percent of people uh, under the age of 50 will have it, who are of sexually active um, age, slightly lower in the UK. We don't have a vaccine for this one, although we do have some drugs which can reduce the severity, particularly of this first infection. But here are three infections, two important, uh, herpes 2 and shingles, uh, which are ones that use the sensory nerves. A much more severe disease, really dangerous, causing extreme destruction of the sensory nerves, is the disease leprosy. And this is a disease uh, which um, can, uh, is caused by a bacteria, a much more specifically a mycobacteria, myco, uh, which uh, is uh, related to some degree to tuberculosis. Historically, this is probably the most feared and most stigmatised disease for someone to have. And the stigma still persists. Uh, here is a particularly infamous headline from uh, the, uh, one of the tabloid press. Uh, Die to shake hands with leper, don't do it, says Sun Doc. Anybody who's been treated for leprosy poses zero risk to anybody, and even if they've not been treated, they pose almost no risk to anybody. 
So this is an outrageous statement from this uh, so-called doc. So um, it remains a major public health problem in a few countries. It caused tens of millions of cases right up to the 1960s. Fortunately, it is very difficult to catch. It's passed on by nasal secretions. So it's a, it's a sort of something you put into your handkerchief. Um, incubation period is up to maybe 15 years. So it's a long period between first being infected and people then getting their symptoms. And after people are treated, it very rapidly, within days, uh, will become uh, non-infectious. Now, this is an example of a disease which is in a... What disease you have depends on how the immune system deals with it. If you catch leprosy and your immune system doesn't immediately get rid of it, which in the great majority of people it will, so you never even have any symptoms at all, and then it causes just one patch of disease because the immune system then jumps on it, you might have one little bit of your skin that's affected and then the rest of your body is completely unaffected. So the immune system has dealt with that. You have almost no leprosy bacteria in your system. You may, at the other extreme, have the immune system not able to deal with leprosy at all, and then it gets through all of your skin, including the face, hands, feet, throughout the entire system, and that can gradually eat away at, damage the nerves of the entire system. And then between that are some people where the immune system is moderately good, and well, they have several patches of leprosy around the body, but not absolutely everywhere. So it's an, it's, a, it's an interplay between the immune system and the infection. The problem with leprosy is that once you lose your sensory nerves, you start to damage yourself very badly. And the sensory nerve loss in leprosy is, in many cases, for practical purposes, complete. People cannot feel pain of any sort. They burn themselves, they stab themselves, they damage themselves, and they do not realise they've done it. Pain may be a pain, but it does protect you very heavily. And by repeated infections, by damage uh, to uh, the bones and other things, uh, you get uh, further and further uh, disability, particularly in uh, cases uh, of uh, the multibacillary leprosy to the hands and feet, uh, and you eventually can go on to lose fingers and toes, as this unfortunate gentleman has here. Leprosy has now been pushed right back into its heartlands, but it is still a problem in some countries. Globally, there are about 200,000 uh, cases, uh, and um, around 19,000 where children were diagnosed, and children, by definition, must have caught it relatively recently. And there are between two and three million people who are living with a disease, uh, meaning they have the disability of the disease, even though the infection itself has gone. It is particularly concentrated in the Indian subcontinent uh, and in Brazil, but it does happen elsewhere. But it can happen in other countries as well. Obviously, it was once common uh, in the UK, as if you, you can tell if you go to see all the leper windows uh, in medieval churches or indeed read any uh, book about the Middle Ages. Uh, in the UK, um, the uh, last uh, case uh, was that was indigenously pa uh, passed on was in 1952. And this is a salutary tale. When this case was diagnosed, remember this is a non-infectious problem, almost impossible to pass on, there were riots in the streets and questions in Parliament. And when there were last leprosy people in large numbers in leprosy houses, uh, they were buried in the UK in unmarked graves. 
This is in, in within 100 years of, of now. This, is, this stigma it persists as a very major issue. Uh, so um, in the USA, uh, as in the UK, we still do see handfuls of cases which are passed on by um, uh, people, which are, sorry, which are caught by people in the high endemic countries. So they travel to uh, Asia or uh, Latin America. But there is also some indigenous transmission, meaning there's a little bit of transmission of leprosy within the USA. And it looks as if it may well come from a reservoir in this friendly guy, uh, the nine-banded armadillo. And what you have here is the distribution of the armadillo. So this is an example. And in this case, almost certainly, this is an example where humans infected the animal. Leprosy was actually unknown in the Americas until people from Africa and Europe uh, introduced it. So this is a, something, a disease that travelled that way uh, in terms of uh, its, its transmission. Finally, some other diseases which can cause problems with inflammation. HIV disease, uh, particularly before we had the antiretroviral drugs, can cause inflammation of the sensory nerves, or at least damage the sensory nerves, and it does so in a rather different way uh, in what's called a glove and stocking distribution. And it does this because it causes damage throughout the nerve length, and therefore the longer the nerve, the further which is away from the system, the more likely it is to be damaged. And it can cause tingling and very odd sensations. Uh, we initially thought this was rare. Actually, it's quite common in very mild form in people with HIV disease. Uh, in most of them, it will stop when the uh, infection uh, comes under control due to treatment. But you can get very severe cases uh, in people with advanced HIV. Uh, what confuses this is also some of the drugs which treat HIV can damage the nerves particularly the older ones. And then the other way, which HIV and a variety of infections can damage sensory nerves, occasionally motor nerves, is something called mononeuritis multiplex. So instead of having all the nerves to the peripheries damaged, a particular nerve trunk is damaged. So one area of skin or one particular muscle group will cease to function. Could be motor, could be sensory, can be both. Uh, and although there are many causes of this, Several infections can cause it, including HIV, hepatitis C, Lyme, and leprosy, uh, but there are a number of other rare causes. So there are several ways in which infections can damage the, those peripheral nerves. I've talked about the um, peripheral motor system. I've talked about the sensory system. Just one slide on the autonomic nervous system. This is the one that keeps your, your things like your gut and your heart functioning affects the heart rate, blood pressure, uh, and a variety of other functions. The great majority of um, people who have uh, uh, an infection will have no problems with the autonomic nervous system. Many of the things which can cause serious other infections, like tetanus, diphtheria, and leprosy, and Gary and Barry syndrome, HIV, and indeed rabies, can affect the autonomic nervous system, but it's a very small part of the disease in most of their cases. If you have the autonomic nervous system infected, you've got problems. Uh, in general. But there is one infection which uh, the autonomic nervous system may be the major way in which it damages people, and that is a parasitic disease in Latin America called Chagas disease. And it's passed on by this uh, rather handsome bug, uh, which when it bites you, it then expels feces, and in its feces it'll have the parasite, and you then scratch yourself, 
and you scratch the bug feces into your skin, uh, and that passes on the parasite, which is this uh, parasite here, seen in the blood. It's a very similar in looks, and indeed in biology in many ways, to sleeping sickness, which you get in Africa, which we uh, talked about in the last talk. You can also pass it on congenitally, mother to child, and in blood transfusions. Uh, and uh, there is a global prevalence, but it's really almost entirely concentrated in Latin America, uh, and then passed on by mothers from Latin America, or if, you, if there is no control of the blood system, through blood transfusions. But the final group of diseases I wanted to talk about were the diseases of the spinal cord. Now, a few obvious points, but ones that are probably worth making. The first one is that in terms of the way the spinal cord works, if you have damage at any particular level, you're likely to get problems at that level and below that level, but not above it. So if you had damage, for example, from an infection in the middle of the back in the thoracic area, with your, your, the area around your chest, you won't get problems with your arms and neck, but you may well get problems with your legs and, for example, bladder and uh, bowel function. And so the higher the problem, the greater the potential impact. The second thing to understand about this is that if we go back to this slide about the anatomy, different bits of the cord do different things. So if only one bit of the cord is damaged by an infection, only that particular function will stop. Everything else will carry on, including below the issue. And uh, to take just three broad things that can happen with infections, the first of which is infections can, can cause damage across the whole of the spinal cord. That means everything below that will cease to get its information from the brain, information to the brain, and cause significant problems subsequently. But you might, for example, get damage due to problems in the bones in the uh, spine, pressing on the nerves uh, in the spinal cord, and that causes damage to the front of the spinal cord, and that will only damage certain functions, motor functions, pain and temperature in particular, but for example, the ability to touch, to feel touch, will remain largely unaffected. So it's a partial damage to the nerve system or it may be that it affects one side of the spinal cord, so one side of your body is affected, but the other side is not affected. So there are, it's not necessarily an all-or-none effect. The things that can damage the spinal cord can broadly be divided into things in the spine, things between the spine and the cord, and things in the cord. Let's start off with things in the spine. The most common of these used to be tuberculosis of the spine, something called POTS disease of the spine. This caused massive damage, and this is an MRI scan. I'm going to show you several of these, so just to talk you through the anatomy. What you see here is the spine with the, these are the bony processes, the discs between them, and running behind it is the spinal cord. And what you get is here's uh, a mummy from, this is a, uh, someone who's, uh, who's an old sufferer of POTS disease and what you can see is massive destruction of the spine meaning that their spine is enormously distorted and where the distortion happens you can get pressure on the spinal cord leading to damage at that point and below the spinal cord. The treatment for this is now bed rest in most cases, TB drugs and in most cases that will be sufficient 
And the way to prevent it is reduce poverty, because TB is primarily a disease of uh, poorer nations, uh, and BCG vaccination. Now, I'm glad to say, relatively rare. Other bacteria can also cause damage to the spine, which then leads to uh, impinging on the spinal cord. Uh, and in particular, uh, the bacteria Staphylococcus, uh, which lives on uh, many of our skins, can cause a lot of damage. And what you can see here uh, in this uh, radiograph uh, is a damage to a spinal process with uh, an infection in here. Same shown in an MRI scan with the uh, spinal processes uh, the, so the, the, um, the bony process is lit up on this system. And those can press on the cord and cause significant damage. And the treatment for these, again, is going to be antibiotics. Kill the bacteria uh, and uh, hope that that leads to a resolution of the symptoms. Sometimes people then need surgery either to stabilise the spine or to help remove the infection. And the final group which can cause problems in the spine itself are parasitic diseases, of which really the most important is a disease called hydatid disease. This, uh, again, we talked about uh, in the last talk. This is a disease between sheep and dogs, where the, uh, the dogs eat the sheep uh, and the sheep eat grass that's infected by dog feces. Uh, if humans catch this, we catch the sheep disease, uh, and that parasite can actually get into the spinal column and cause pressure on the spine, causing paralysis or other problems. So TB, bacteria, and uh, this parasite can all cause physical pressure on the cord. The next group of things that can cause problems are infections between the spine uh, or the bones and the spinal cord. They're in soft tissues, and these are abscesses, and these can be caused by bacteria, TB, or fungi of different sorts. And again, with all of these what you want to do is you need to uh, give antibiotics, which will depend on what kind of bacteria they are. The most common ones are the staphylococcus, uh, which are ones you get from your skin, and uh, what's called E. coli, which are ones you get generally from urine, but there are other uh, ways, urine in the gut, there are other ways you can get them. And these can cause significant problems, causing abscesses, which press on the spinal cord and can cause spinal cord uh, damage or paralysis. And the treatment is, again, antibiotics. And you may need to put a needle in here or do surgery to drain the abscess. And then finally, there are infections of the spinal cord itself. And I'm going to start off uh, with two parasites. The first of those is a parasite called cystosocosis. This is the pork tapeworm. So that's pig. this is a pig-human tapeworm cycle. Last time we talked about it in the context of this is the thing which is the single largest cause of adult onset epilepsy globally. But these parasite cystocerci, uh, which are the forms that normally gets into the pig rather than the human, can also get into the spinal cord. And here is one here. It looks quite dramatic. In terms of its effects, it is quite dramatic. In this case, they were able just to put a needle in and just suck it out and the nerve, the, the function uh, was uh, returned. And here is a thing which rarely, uh, in most terms, but in parts of uh, Africa in particular, is still an issue, uh, the uh, infection schistosomiasis. Schistosomiasis you catch from swimming in fresh water, uh, particularly in very beautiful places like Lake Malawi or Lake Uganda, uh, so, so Lake Victoria and Uganda. 
Um, it penetrates the skin, gets into your bladder or your liver and gut, and there it lives in a state of uh, happy permanent copulation. This is the man, that's the, that's the lady uh, in this, for several years producing eggs. Normally that doesn't cause very major problems, but if it gets into the spinal cord, which it occasionally does, that can go on to cause paralysis. Again, this is something which can be treated with drugs straightforwardly. But there are some bacterial infections which lead to particular problems of invasion of the spinal cord. And I'll give one bacterial infection and a bit about viral infections. The bacterial infection that's worth mentioning because it is very specialised in this area is syphilis. And this produces an infection called tabes dorsalis. Dorsalis because it's the dorsal columns of the spinal cord. And what it does is over several years it invades the spinal cord. This area here on this uh, uh, histology is equivalent to this area on the diagram. It invades it over time and uh, leads to the, white, the, the, uh, the nerves uh, ceasing to function. And this affects sensation, in particular, touch and the ability to feel where your joints are in space. And this leads to people being finding it very difficult to walk. And they walk with this very curious, uh, wide-based, staggering gait. And this gets a lot worse in the dark because during the light, their vision tells them where they are. They can see their feet, but if they can't see their feet, they, you rely then on your sensation, and it makes it very difficult uh, to, uh, to stay, stay upright. Fortunately, this is now very rare indeed, but it used to be extremely common. In fact, it was the, cause, it was the thing which was the thesis, the doctoral thesis for Arthur de Conan Doyle, who wrote all the, uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories uh, in his Edinburgh MD, um, but now you, don't, you virtually never see it, and that's because most people will have their syphilis treated either knowingly, someone knows it's syphilis and they treat it, or actually often accidentally, they get syphilis and then they're given antibiotics for another reason. And provided they're given it between getting the infection and getting the tabies, which is usually many years, uh, they will go on to have no long-term neurological problems. And the final thing I wanted to talk about on the spinal cord is something called acute transverse myelitis. What this means is an inflammation of the spinal cord that goes across it. And there are broadly two things which cause this. <clears throat> Viruses, and with the viral causes, it is almost always going to be an immunological response. It isn't a viral infection specifically, but the immune system is responding to the viral infection, causes inflammation of the spinal cord, and can cause paralysis south of that point in the body. It may resolve but it can leave permanent damage. And examples of viruses which can do this include herpes, uh, enteroviruses, measles, mumps, HIV, and occasionally influenza A. And then a variety of tropical diseases like dengue, Zika, and West Nile virus. So these infections, partially directly, but probably much more due to the indirect effect of the immune system, can lead to permanent paralysis. And then the other group which can do it, in this case, by inflammation caused by direct infections, are various bacteria. And some bacteria can invade the spinal cord. And they include TB, Campylobacter, which is a gut infection, quite a common one, paratyphoid, a uh, relatively uh, common uh, bacterial infection you, pass, you get by eating infected foods, but also by a variety of rather more exotic uh, infections, leptospirosis, which you get through generally from uh, rat urine when you uh, wade around in rivers, 
Uh, scrub typhus, passed on by this mite, which you get through crawling through jungles or other things you can catch by that. Uh, Lyme disease, which uh, certainly causes a lot of headlines, uh, passed on by ticks like this one here. Uh, brucellosis, passed on by unpasteurized milk from uh, goats or, or, uh, or uh, cows generally. Uh, and uh, there was an outbreak of this uh, in the US that was passed on by uh, parrots, chlamydia cytokai. So a variety of different infections can go on to cause uh, this problem by direct bacterial infection. Most of them you would treat with antibiotics. So to summarise, infections can cause damage to nerve function by several routes. Many of these infections are preventable, uh, many of them are treatable. They can produce toxins like tetanus, botulinum and diphtheria. They can directly invade nerves like polio, leprosy, shingles or syphilis. They can activate the immune system like the Guillain-Barre syndrome or the transverse myelitis and they can cause physical damage to the spinal cord by a variety of methods as we've talked about. So if we look at these really often very severe, sometimes fatal, often seriously disabling diseases, many of the worst fortunately are substantially reducing. Tetanus, polio, leprosy, diphtheria, neurological syphilis are either virtually gone or shadows of their former self, except sometimes in very specific areas like leprosy. The risks from others like shingles are reducing because of particularly vaccination, but a small group of important diseases remain. And this remains, infections of the nerve remain a, a serious problem and are likely to, uh, certainly for the lifetimes of everyone in this audience. Thank you very much. <laughs>